Um, tonight, this is going to be more of a sharing time. Uh, Beam and Nicole asked us to come um, and speak about purity defined, a candid conversation about sex. Now, I want to tell you, here's why they had that. Here's some of the comments that they have heard uh, over the year. Quote, sex is something that the world is talking about, yet the church doesn't. Okay. Quote, don't you need experience for your wedding night? Quote, what about if a virgin is marrying a non-virgin who has more experience? Won't they feel at a disadvantage? Now, these are just some of the things that they have heard. And obviously, what you hear is a lot of anxiety, a lot of doubt. But you know what? It is typical. Because, you see, all of us are children of the sexual revolution. I think I'm pretty safe within the margins by saying that the sexual revolution really started, I mean, some people could say it started back in the beginning of the 20th century with the car and with Freud and all of that, but it really seemed like the blossom in the 1960s. I was there in the 1960s, okay? Many of you weren't. You were born into a world that's just this way. I remember it going upside down. I remember when people just said, bag marriage, live with people. And it's amazing, the living together didn't ever last that long. They went from one person to another person to another person, yet they would use the word commitment. I remember reading a, uh, a biography by a major figure in the 1960s political revolution, kind of the young uh, revolutionary movement. And he was talking about 30 years later, he went and he saw this girl that he had lived with. And she had all of this bitterness toward him because he just kind of left her and went off because he was doing his own thing. Whatever felt good to him, he would do it. And so there was this sense that there's no, you know, consequence, no casualty to this type of action. And here we are today. We have nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds doing all sorts of sexual things to each other. We have kids that have regular access to pornography. Children. Children. It's to the point now, guys, that any time I study the Bible with a guy, I'm almost expecting him to talk about sexual abuse, that he was molested. And this is not a certain type of... I'm just talking about across the board. It's gotten that prevalent, and I know the women is exactly the same thing. The whole time, people saying, we're going to be free. You know, let's just free love, free sex. And then the age crisis came about. But by then, man, so many people had been scarred and emotionally. And even to this day, people are doing things and not accepting the consequence. Abortions have been out of control. I think we're over 34 million since Roe v. Wade, 34 million, those are human beings. Now, let me say this, guys. A lot of the church, a lot of all of us in the movement, we either had an abortion, paid for an abortion, or encouraged an abortion. 
So I'm not saying this to be self-righteous, condescending. I'm just saying, look at the catastrophic impact of the sexual revolution. Try and justify it any way you want. Anytime I've held up my kids, my grandchildren, it's like, wow, wow, wow. So, we're going to talk about sex here. But why do we even need to talk about it? Because we are children of the sexual revolution. Because we come in, because every magazine we read, every TV show, every movie, there's a message there. And that message is, man, don't, you know, hinder yourself from expressing yourself. And many times those expressions end up in a court because somebody got violated. But the person, oh, I was just trying to express. Or they were asking for it. Have you heard that? No, we've got to talk about it. Isn't it interesting? We can talk about it. right now. We could break up into groups and everyone share about, you know, you could hear people conversing and saying, here's I've been tempted with pride lately. And here's what I'm trying to do about it. I've been tempted with envy lately. And here's what I'm trying to do about it. And men and women can share. Here's what's helped me. Here's, but how do you do it? I've been tempted with sexuality and lust lately. All of a sudden, we go into a whole different sphere. Why? Something has happened. Something has happened. Damage has happened. And so we need to know how to think about this. Now, let me say this. Deb and I are going to get to how to think about this at the end of our sharing. So you guys are going, why don't you just say it out? No, 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 no. You don't take this out of context. That's been part of the problem anyway. Oh, sex is just this. Oh, no, 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 no. The problem, the thing that's caused the most damage, people taking it way out of God's context. What I want to do, uh, in just a second, Bill is going to run a uh, um, a little six-minute video on introducing the book of Genesis. This is uh, from thebibleproject.com. If you want to go to some amazing videos, just short Doing These guys have done incredible stuff. But before he does that, I want to read from Genesis 1, and then Bill will uh, start that. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Sounds like a great beginning. Let's watch this introduction to Genesis. The first book in the Bible is a book you've probably heard of. It's called... Genesis. Genesis comes from a Hebrew word. Uh, it's pronounced reshit, uh, and it just means beginning. Now, there's a lot of stories from the book of Genesis, and it's easy just to pull out a specific story and, and try to tell you what it might mean. But we think the best way to understand this book is to look at the book as a whole and show you how the whole thing is designed. The book is designed to fall into two main parts. You have uh, chapters 1 through 11, which is telling the story of God and the whole world. 
And then you have the second part, which is about God and Abraham's family as chapters 12 through 50. And how the two of those parts relate, that's where you find the message of the book. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. The first part of Genesis begins with a creation story where God creates everything. And how exactly that happens, of course, that's where all the debates come. But he takes a dark, watery chaos and he turns it into a beautiful garden where humans can can flourish. That sounds nice. It does sound nice. In fact, seven different times God says of all that he's made that it's good. And this is where we meet the first human characters in the Bible, Adam and Eve. They're, they're both individual characters, but they're also representative. Adam is the Hebrew word for humanity, and Eve is the Hebrew word for life. And God creates them in his image. In other words, humanity reflects or is meant to reflect the, the, the creativity, the goodness and character of the creator out into the world that he's made. And they're supposed to reproduce and make cultures and neighborhoods and art and gardens and and everything else. But he gives them a a moral choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And this is what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. And he tells them, don't eat of the fruit of this tree or you will die. What's that all about? So up till now, God has been the one defining and providing what is good. And so God is the one with the knowledge of good and evil. But now this tree represents a choice. Will the humans trust God's definition of good and evil? Or are they going to seize the opportunity and define good and evil for themselves? And Adam and Eve eat the fruit. This is the core biblical explanation for that concept of sin. That desire to call the shots myself. It's the inward turn of the human heart to do what's good for me and my tribe, even if it's at the expense of you and and your tribe. And the problem is humans are horrible at defining good and evil without God. And so now that humanity's made this choice, things get really, really, really bad. So Genesis 3 through 11 is like tracing this downward spiral of all, all humanity. So Adam and Eve, they can't trust each other. Anymore, And so there's a little story about how they were naked and felt fine about it beforehand, but now they feel shameful because all of a sudden Adam's definition of good and evil might be different than Eve's, and so they hide from each other. Then there's another story of temptation. Cain is jealous of his brother Abel, and he gives in and kills him. There's a story right after Cain about a guy named Lamech, and all we know about Lamech is that he accumulates wives like property, and he sings songs about how he's a more violent, vengeful person than Cain ever was, and he's proud of it. Things get so bad with the human race that we see God decide to just wipe us out. Yeah, we typically think of the flood story as about God being angry, but it actually begins with God's sadness and grief about the state of his world. And so out of his passion to preserve the goodness of his world, he washes it clean with the flood. But there's a glimmer of hope. He, he chooses Noah and his whole family, and he saves them on this boat. Yeah, don't forget about the animals. Right, and the animals. So Noah and his family are going to reboot all of humanity. I mean, he must be a pretty great guy. But this is a story most people don't know because it's kind of weird, is that Noah gets off the boat, and he plants a vineyard, and he gets totally plastered, and then something sketchy happens in his tent with his son. It's a tragic story. So from here, humanity grows again, but things are as bad as before. And the last story 
is the famous story of the Tower of Babel. And in this story, you have all of the nations uniting together to use this new technology they have, the brick. And they want to make a name for themselves and build this big city with a huge tower that will reach up to the gods. But God knows that this city will be a nightmare. And so in his mercy, he scatters them. And all of these stories, they're underlining the same basic idea. When humans seize autonomy from God, when they define good and evil for themselves, it results in a world of tragedy and death. And this leaves you wondering, is there any hope for humanity? Yes, yeah, there is. It's the very next story that answers that question. It's the beginning of God's mission to rescue and restore his world. Okay, notice uh, what happened there with Adam and Eve. God, the way God created it, you know, um, Adam and Eve, sex is not an issue. It's not an issue. Yeah, they, they had sex. He said, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But it's not an issue. When they sin, all of a sudden, they are ashamed. Because like it says there, I like how they say that, they now have a different idea about good and evil. And you will read the rest of the scriptures as God is trying to redeem mankind. It's amazing how much sexual sin is out there because of the drive. And all of a sudden, I become the standard of what's right and what's wrong. Oh, no. That's why all of the stuff starts happening. That's where the damage starts coming in. I want us to stop and think about God's creative intent. Everything was perfect. Everything was good. We didn't need to have devotionals on sex. But something happened. Deb's going to share a couple of things about God's creative intent, and then we're going to talk about some of the problems that came about from this and why we need to talk about this. Um, this is just going to focus back on God's creative intent. And um, I want to say before I start that um, this is a really special group to us to share tonight. It's not, this is not flattery in any way, but you guys are heroes to us. There's some people in this audience that have been following Jesus for many years and uh, have gone through some of the things we're talking about tonight. And I just want you to know, all of you to know, that I, I respect you, and I'm so thankful that this group of people is living in this city at this time. Uh, I'm so, so thankful that you've made the decisions that you, you've made to make Jesus Lord, so that God's creative intent can be seen in all of you individually every day. In the workplace, in your neighborhoods, in your families, everywhere. So I want you to know that. It's, you guys are awesome. And um, we're very thankful for you. You know, the, one of the first things that we see in Genesis 1 is that we were created to be God's image bearer, right? We were created in the image of God. What is the image of God when we think about that? God is love. Right? Who can tell me what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8? Love is 
patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not keep a record of wrongs. It is not self-seeking. It is not rude. It is, it goes on, right? It's not easily angered. Uh, Love never fails. Love never fails. That's God's character. And that's who, the creative intent, when God made us, that's who he made us to be. That's amazing, right? If we just had that, It would be worth it all. Um, You know, another thing that Sheridan mentioned and saw in the video is that God created us to rule and reign over creation. Your father is the king of the universe. Do you ever sit and just think about that? Your dad is the creator of all. Your dad is the king He gave you an earthly father, earthly mother, you know, to raise you for a time. But your true father is the king of the universe, God Almighty. What does that make you? That makes you princes and princesses, right? To rule over the earth. You know, the question comes to us when we think of the creative intent. What kind of ruler am I going to be? What kind of ruler am I going to be? You know, uh, some of the single women in, um, in Staten Island, we've been talking about how they're, they're working with people in the workplace all the time that are living in the world. They're having the relationships that God says isn't good. But we've been talking about how their lives, the, the women that are disciples' lives, are so amazing. They have something to share. They have real answers. They have deep conviction. They have love that's real for people. That's not just about them. They go to countries all over the world. They serve all over the world. They have an amazing life. And I want you guys sometimes to think about your life. I think Satan can sometimes make us just think negatively And what's in the world? You know, those Hallmark movies, no one lives those lives. Do you know that? There's no Christians. That's just a two-hour movie, and they'll make you struggle the whole time because it's not reality. It's not life, right? We need to remember that because God gives us the stuff that life is really made of. Another thing that we can do um, is to really cultivate unity. To have a common purpose, to build friendships in this group, that you really enjoy your life. That's not your goal, but God gives us an enjoyment of life. You live in one of the greatest cities in the world. You really do. Now, we know that Satan lives here, too. You know what Sam Powell says, Satan visits other places, but he lives here. And uh, it's true, right? He really does. <laughs> but we live in one of the greatest cities in the Lord, in the world. You guys get out and make the most of your life in the workplace, but enjoy your life. Enjoy every day. Uh, live your life every day. Live life every day. Enjoy your brothers and sisters. And share your faith as you go. 
And you will be changing people as you go. That's God's creative intent for all of you. You're game changers. Everybody in this room is a game changer. Everybody that you're around has a chance to know things that for all time God has planned for them. You know, as Deb was talking, I couldn't help but remember what Sam Lang used to talk about. He used to talk about the Genesis touch. Like the influence we can have on people's lives can bring life, can renew. And you know, that's what redemption is all about. We get to start over. We've been forgiven. We get to renew, have a new chance at life. And that's the impact we can have on people. But we've got to go back to, I want to be... The reflect the image of God. I am his image bearer. I'm not going to be my own God. I'm going to let him decide what's right and wrong, and I'm going to follow that. I'm not going to be the one to decide that. The minute I get there, things get all messed up. I go against his creative intent. Okay, so Adam and Eve made the wrong choice. They now wanted to be the standard of right or wrong. They each have their own right or wrong, so now they don't trust each other. They know they can take advantage of each other. And even sex now can become a way of manipulation or a power tool. All right? Again, they never had to have talks like that. They never had to worry about that. But once you become your own God, it's all on you. It's all on you. So I want us to look at three problems that come about from the uh, from sexual sin, and uh, they're going to be um, what I call the biological slash spiritual problem. Secondly, the emotional problem, and thirdly, the social problem. I want to start. Uh, Deb, you're going to read these scriptures. Can you read them? You want me to no, read this? Why don't we read the scriptures first? You want to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, that's all right. Uh, Deb's going to read first. Thessalonians 4. Yeah, say it again. First, First Thessalonians 4, verses 3, 3 through 8. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. What does that word mean? Set apart. Set apart. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his or her own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or sister or take advantage of him or her. The Lord will punish men and women for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. And then Romans 1, 18 through 28. Okay. Um, Romans 1, 18 through 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. The first problem that uh, comes on, these aren't necessarily in order, but it's a problem I call the biological slash spiritual problem. There was a time the scientists believed that our brains were fixed. You know, that pretty much... They stay the same throughout life. Well, over the past couple of decades, research has shown that's just not true. You know what God has created? He's created our brains to actually change. It's called neuroplasticity. God created it that way. God gave Adam and Eve that type of mind so that they would set their mind on him and their mind would continue to grow and be, you know, going toward that way. What I want to do is, uh, last April, I went to a, uh, a conference, and I heard a, uh, it was like a TED Talk by Dr. Mark Carvalho, uh, who is a psychiatrist. He's a brother in the Jacksonville Church, and uh, he specializes in addictions, you know, drug addictions, sexual addictions, food addictions, any addictions. And so his talk was on addictions, and I want to take just a portion of this talk, and I want you to think about sexual sin. are trying to function, but they're stuck by substance use or behaviors. Okay, it's not all about drugs. Remember, sexual addiction, pornography, gambling addiction, food addiction, all of it. The concept we're going to talk about right now is the most important thing you should take home from this meeting today. We call it the brain reward pathway or the pleasure reward pathway. I've labeled that area of reward there, and I like as I defined, if you introduce an addictive substance to that area, whether it's drugs, alcohol, whatever it may be, it will hijack the brain to believe it needs that thing to survive. Okay? Now, I want you to imagine on a table, picture frames. And on each picture frame, you put a picture that, the moment you look at that picture, it will give you joy. It could be the birth of your child. It could be your baptism. It could be your marriage, you holding your wife. And with each one of those pictures, imagine a spike of dopamine associated with the joy you feel. Small little spike, small little spike, small little spike. But now imagine you introduce pornography to that brain reward pathway. Do you remember the spike of amphetamine? Very similar. Massive spike. What does that do? All those things that had importance to you in your life, everything that you've built, all those little spikes, gone. 
Your existence becomes about getting that reward that's associated with that massive amount of dopamine. And what does your brain do? How am I going to hide the pornography? How am I going to get another cell phone for these other relationships I have? Where am I going to get money for my gambling addiction? How am I going to hide food throughout the house so in the middle of the night I can go and binge and nobody will know? How can I hide alcohol bottles in the garage? It becomes your existence and the brain becomes hijacked. But also, right next to that little reward area is that thing I labeled memory. Right next to there is something called the amygdala. And this is key. What is the amygdala? The amygdala was responsible for us when we would walk out of a cave a thousand years ago and we would hear coming from the left a saber-toothed tiger. We don't even have to look at it. But automatically, bam, the amygdala fires. It sets off a flight-or-fight response and we jump back in and we survive. The amygdala was designed for survival. And it's right next to the area of the brain responsible for reward and feeling good. But also around the side of that where the memory is, is something called the hippocampus. All of our memories, as far back as you can remember, from third grade, second grade, everything is stored in that area. Now imagine, imagine the incredible stronghold this area has. Dopamine, reward, feeling good, next to massive impulsivity, survival, and all the memories. Gentleman opens up his laptop, pops it open, click, doing some work, pop up, something that's somewhat pornographic. Dopamine starts to fire. It's the amygdala. You need that. You need that to survive. You want that. Take it. Hippocampus. The memories of all the porn, of everything, feeding into that. Before you know it, that person has relapsed. And they don't even realize they're doing it until after the fact that they can't even deal with the guilt and shame of what just happened. Marcus, why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? I don't want to continue to live like this. Addiction is a hijacking of the pleasure-reward pathway. Now, you may be listening and saying, like, wow, this is, why is he even up there talking? I mean, it sounds like there's no hope. How are we ever going to help these people? How are we going to help our kids? How are we going to help these people who are struggling with this? I'm not saying that people will not overcome their addiction. And actually, the majority of people over time will maintain sobriety over their addictions. What I'm talking about is the incredible vulnerability of the brain. Why? Neuroplasticity. Remember the bicycle. You could jump back on that thing 20 years later and ride it like nothing. The neurons that were laid down, although they may not be strong, they will always be there. And it is the vulnerability of the brain that you can always relapse. Where's the hope lie? The hope lies in that front area where I just labeled judgment. That's called the prefrontal cortex. You could just call it the frontal lobe. That's where right and wrong. My values. I want to be a spiritual man. I want to lead my family. I don't want to be a slave to this pornography anymore. I want to have an intimate relationship with my wife. I want to live. That's where that lies, is in the prefrontal cortex. How do we strengthen that area? The same way we create an addiction with neuroplasticity we can actually overcome an addiction with neuroplasticity. The brain is a use-it-or-lose-it system. When we identify the neural pathways that sat in that brain reward pathway in the amygdala, the triggers associated of why we use those things, we identify them, they're clear to us from a frontal lobe perspective. We can say right and wrong. And then we establish new healthy neural pathways in the frontal lobe. Guys, remember, 
before we became Christians, did we make the decision to become Christians because of our amygdala impulsively? No, it's a frontal lobe concept. You've got to count the cost. It's the same thing in addiction. You lay down new, healthy neural pathways. This is another uh, shot of neuroplasticity from left to right. Okay? See that there's one, two, three, four, and then you go all the way to the right. It's webs and webs of it. That's creating addiction. As easy as you can go from left to right, you can go from right to left. But look, when you go right to left, those neural pathways are still there. That is the vulnerability. Okay? Neuroplasticity, allowing for the frontal lobe to guide our next decision, but not let the amygdala dictate an impulsive move. When the frontal lobes are stronger than the pleasure-reward pathway, understand, the pleasure-reward pathway is always strong, always charged. You woke up this morning, you had your coffee, you slept, you ate, you're feeding that reward pathway. It's strong. Did you wake up this morning and if you're in recovery, did you read something about addiction? Are you focusing on your addiction? Are you working on it daily? Tonight, are you going to work on it daily? Are you going to go to an AA meeting tonight? When the frontal lobes are stronger than the pleasure-reward pathway, what is that? Sobriety. Important to understand, the pleasure-reward pathway is always charged. Why? Because it's about survival. When the frontal lobes are weaker than the pleasure-reward pathway, what is that called? Relapse. You're right back where you started. Bam. You're led by a charged amygdala. There is a war going on between the frontal lobe and the pleasure-reward pathway. How many times when I tell my patients or somebody at church, this is what's happening. Dr. DiCarvalho or Marcus, I've never heard that before. And that's the goal for this group, for you to be able to take this to your membership and communicate that so they can see the insight. Why are they continuing to do the things they don't want to do? Do you think they want to be a slave to impurity or addiction? No, they want to live. In Romans 12.2, Paul had it. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. He understood. When we do conform to that, those patterns create neuroplasticity, and we just follow that. But he said, be transformed with the renewing of your mind. He understood that we can create new, healthy habits. To encourage you. After... Just what you heard there, let me ask you, does this sound familiar? <clears throat> we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who am doing it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And he goes on and on, and then he goes, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. People think, well, look, you know, so you think some thoughts, you see, watch some movies, some, you know, it's not really that bad. It's not, what's going on in the brain? That dopamine spikes and neural pathways are being laid down to create more dopamine. So you do it again, some more dopamine and some more dopamine. And what does the dopamine? That's the feeling of, I need this. I've got to have this. 
I've got to have sex. I've got to. It's just natural. It's normal. I've got to. Yeah, you've been feeding your mind with so much stuff. I understand it. You want to do good, but you don't have the power. You know why? You're not doing what God said to deal with it. See, Adam and Eve didn't have to deal with this before the fall. This was a non-issue. Neuroplasticity was always great. <laughs> Going in the right direction. After the fall, all of a sudden, I can be God. I'm going to spike and let me go this way. But I decide what's right or wrong. You know what? I could start making her do some things I want to. Man, that makes me feel more power, more godlike. Oh, I could, I could try and manipulate him. I could do that. I feel more godlike. And what's happening now? That the mind, what God created, is being hijacked by sin. Thinking that we'll find the reward in that. Isn't that what Jesus, Jesus came to save us from our empty and futile ways of our forefathers, right? Because our biologically, we've been hijacked. Now, the hope is our minds can be renewed, but we've got to want to think that. We've got to make a decision. I'm going to set my mind. Read Romans 8. Deb and I have so much stuff we could go into and take all night. But just, you need to go back and read Romans 8, where he says, you know, the, the sinful mind uh, is hostile to God. You set your mind on what the Spirit desires. That's what we do. Or we set our mind on what the flesh desires. That's the choice we have. And uh, wherever you're going to do it, guess what? God created your brain to start morphing toward that. Sometimes people go, I don't know why I keep getting defeated over and over again. Okay, well, talk to me about your relationship with God. Yeah, I try and get a quiet time now and then. I try and read and try and pray. It's like, well, okay, well, good luck, man. Seriously, good luck. Biologically, good luck. There's nothing you're putting in there. And people think, well, God, you just changed me. God said he gave you a choice, Adam and Eve, a choice, right? What will you think about? Where are you going to set your mind? He said it over and over and over again in the scriptures. We don't do it. We're too lazy and we wonder what happened. There's no mystery in it. You're going along as you were created. That brain neuroplasticity was created that way, but it's been hijacked. By sin and rebellion. So, that's the problem. We see it. So, why can't we just sit down and just, hey, let's talk about sexual temptation with, you know, guys and girls together. Why can't you do that? Because all of the memories start coming up. Some girl confesses, yeah, I'm kind of sexually tempted. Wow, all of a sudden files start coming up in our minds. And I'm not looking at her like a sister in Christ anymore. I'm looking at her as a, as a potential. A guy starts saying, boy, I'm, I'm struggling with, you know, I'm attracted to this, that. And all of a sudden, the girl's mind's going, he's not a brother in Christ anymore. He's a potential. It's interesting how powerful that is. But that's why you hear all the stuff today. Well, you just got to do it. You can't not have sex. You can't not. Well, if you don't have God in your life, yeah, you're right. If you're not a Christian, yeah, you you know, knock it out. Do whatever you need to do. That's your life. But for a Christian that is filled with the Holy Spirit, that is being led by the Holy Spirit, led, mind-wise, uh, uh, I'm not going to get into a conversation. I don't counsel women. There's a reason. 
Actually, there are two reasons. Number one is I don't understand them, but that's, that's, that's beside the point, all right? That's a, it's a competency issue at that point. No, but I don't want them to say something that I don't need in my mind. I don't need to think of her any differently, so Deb, knock yourself out. She's all yours, you know? And I don't say that to be mean. I say that to protect myself and her as well. Does that make sense? You know why? Because my brain can go some bad places, so I want to set my mind on what the Spirit desires. All right? Okay. Deb's going to talk about the emotional problems that have come. Um, There's a lot of things we could talk about about emotional damage. Um, I want to pick out something that I think comes up in the church from time to time. I've been here for 30 years in the New York church, so I've seen a lot of different decades of things. And um, one thing that rears its head is idolatry of marriage. Okay, did you hear me? Idolatry of marriage. Okay? Um, You know, Satan uses this in the church. And uh, he, marriage, as God designed it, is a great thing. Am I doing something wrong? Oh. No, we're dinosaurs. You know that. Um, but but um, Satan just uses it. And I want to a broad topic, but I want to talk about the roots of it for just a minute. And I really believe that any time idolatry is wrong, right? We know that. What is idolatry? It's anything or anyone who has more influence over you than God. Whatever that thing or that person is, is an idol. If there's anybody or anything that has more influence over you, your life, your decisions... The trajectory of your life, that's an idol. Okay? But idolatry is something um, that can come about from other root sins. And I'm just going to talk about these for me. I have the bad news here. But some of the things that can trigger this is jealousy, envy, self-pity, hopelessness, doubt, You know, doubt and hopelessness are very powerful. Do you know that? Um, Because the thing about Satan is he never uses something new. You can trace it all the way back to the garden. He just wants you to doubt God. He wants you to doubt that God loves you, that he's involved. He wants you to believe that God forgot about you somehow, that he's asleep somewhere. You know, it's, it's crazy sometimes, the things that sit in our minds and that Satan puts there. And um, it is that war, that emotion, that, that mental war, but a lot of times leads to emotional issues. So whatever, if you catch yourself feeling sorry for yourself that you're not married, or you feel somehow like a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God... Because you're not married, 
that's not the choice. Uh, the got one more. <laughs> Um, do you believe the scripture? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do you believe that? We have to believe that all of our lives. And so we have to be truth seekers, right? No, you are not a second class citizen in the kingdom of God because you're not married at all, ever. And, um, you know, Some of you in this room have even been married at one time. I want to talk about the underbelly of that. Marriage is hard work. I'm just telling you. I'll I'll give you a little one from Sheridan and I. Unity, having unity in a relationship takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of communication. Okay, now can you hear? Sorry. So, so it takes a lot of hard work, right? And I was going to tell you a story. You know, Sheridan and I were in Manhattan for 13 years. And so this is about three years ago we moved to Staten Island. Well, after we'd been there about six months, we were just bumping heads. I mean, we were getting into it every day. And we were like, what is going on with us? I mean, we've been married 39 years this year. And we, we, um, no, <laughs> but we don't really, you know, get into, we, we have, we, we definitely can square off. We, we did it this week, but I don't mean that, but we just don't. It's not an everyday thing. But we were just bumping heads, and it was over the car. And so we realized after a while that we had been in Manhattan for 13 years. I never had to communicate with him except to make sure he knew that so he wouldn't worry that I was safe here. But I made my schedule. I got on that train. I walked those blocks and I was gone. So now all of a sudden in Staten Island, we got to figure out how to use this car. Because you can't walk places there. The train doesn't go places there. So we had to take apart our week and decide, because we're both in the ministry, who's going to use the car on what day and coordinate our schedules. So we were just like, oh, you know, we remember these days like years, 20 years ago when we had to do this. But lo and behold, here it was again. You understand what I'm saying? When you're single, you just get on that train, right? Can I hear an amen? I mean, come on. I can give you a list of reasons why you don't have to idolize marriage. I can give you a whole lot. So I don't want to throw marriage under the bus, but let's get real here. There's a lot of hard work in it. If I just want to go to Europe sometime, that's just, I don't do that. I don't have my own bank account. I don't have my own time. I don't, you understand what I'm saying? It's all got to be coordinated all the time. And I'm, I'm just telling you that when Satan tries to put that in your head, oh, poor you, you're really missing out on life, you need to know, you need to say, no, sir. I know the truth, and the truth is setting me free. And I have a lot of things 
to be thankful for in this stage of life. Okay? All righty. You know, one thing that's the emotional damage, sometimes people think, well, you know what, I have these sexual needs. And again, they're not setting their mind, they're just focusing on what they need. And so the need is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's growing. So you know what, I, I need to get married, I just need to get married. And they think that's going to cure it. And they wonder why finally they get married. Deb and I, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for marriage. It's, it's wonderful. Marriage isn't for everybody. Everybody doesn't have to get married, okay? But I tell you what, we've sat in some counseling sessions where these people had been so in love, and oh my gosh, and they were just all sweaty-palmed, and you know, they, we just want to get married, and you know, and they went ahead and did it. We had said, wait, there's some other things. It's not about just doing that. And then a couple years down the road, all they're trying to figure out is a way to get out of it and not face God on the day of judgment. I've, I've, I've heard a person even say, man, I don't care if I ever get married again. Just get me out of this. You know why? They have been emotionally traumatized. And a lot of it is, man, they weren't letting God decide what's right or wrong, especially how to think about the sexual relationship. They were just all about them and them and them and the other person about them, them, them. And you put that together and wow. Then you got to try and help them. They can be redeemed. I've seen them be redeemed. But I'm saying that the emotional damage and it all came from the whole misunderstanding and uh, of, of sexuality and God's purpose there and uh, what God designed. So that's the emotional, the uh, social problems. And, uh, you know, God cares about community. I pray, or we pray, our Father, right? Who art in heaven. Jesus didn't say, pray my Father. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying Father and just you and your relationship with God. You need to do that. There are other passages that talk about that. But you've got to understand, God is family-oriented. He wants more people in heaven than just you and just me. You know, maybe we're awesome and all that. So is everybody else in the world. He thinks in community. That's what the church is supposed to be. This is preparing us to be with Him in His presence forever, to learn how to love, to learn how to communicate. All of this, this is a community what does sexual sin do? It destroys communities because it destroys trust. There are other agendas now involved. I have something. I, I named it after a person, but I've kept that to myself all these years. I was a young Christian. And uh, uh, I just became a Christian, and I just thought everyone is excited about being a disciple and you know, it's not like I was a very gregarious person or anything. It wasn't. But I just knew, man, I have been forgiven. I, I ought to invite somebody. It just seemed logical, right? It's very biblical, too. So I was thinking about how to help people. And there was a disciple in one of my classes at the University of Florida. I didn't know it. I met him. It was exciting. And so I was hoping we could invite people. But I was inviting. He wasn't. I'm kind of like, okay, I don't know what's going on. Then I found out, you know, he's actually working, going to school part-time, but he was dating a, a woman in church, got engaged, 
He was at all the activities. He was doing everything. Got married. And shortly thereafter, didn't come to a thing. But he was able to have sex. Now, I don't know everything in that situation. I do know God will sort that out. But I thought, you know, sexual sin destroys trust. People can come to a church to try and find a husband, find a wife. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get married at all. Don't misunderstand me. But they come, and that is the sole purpose. They will read the Bible. They'll learn some God talk. Oh, grace is wonderful. And I read Jeremiah. And, you know, they're, man, they'll be at all of the things. They'll be all of that. But they've got to get themselves married. I often, when people are dating, I say, you know what? Why don't you ask them, hey, did you give it special contribution? Ooh, well, you know, I'm not really into that. Then what are you doing here? Because that's what we're into, is giving and evangelizing, mission thing. You see, you start finding out. Say, hey, you want to go out? Let's, let's, you know, would you like to come with me? I'm going to share my faith. You want to do that? No, I'm not really into that. Really? Really? Start, start kind of poking in some of these real sensitive areas. Money and, you know, evangelism, those are the two. The money, first of all, I'm not going to give it. Evangelism ain't going to do it. You start realizing that anything spirit is all about them. So I wonder what the relationship is all about. Sexual sin destroys social relationships. It breeds mistrust. And it hurts people. So, those are the problems. So, how do we think about this thing called sex? Okay? First of all, going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there's a choice that we have to make. Am I going to be a Christian or am I going to be a heathen? Now, I'm not trying to be funny here. I'm just trying to say anything that I've talked about and tried to encourage you means nothing if you don't want to be a Christian. So, you, right? I mean, if you want to be a heathen, a heathen is someone that has no God. If you want to be a heathen, then you've got to do however you want to live your life, right? You can go from bed to bed, experience to experience. You can try things. You can do all of that. In fact, what is really wrong? Some of these people that tried to define good and evil for themselves and the molesting that they did to children who will live with those scars, but see, they're God. They decide, well, I'm sick. Yeah, how'd the sickness come about? Did you rebel against a living God and the neuroplasticity? Could you have submitted to the living God and started getting help? See, you've got to decide, am I going to be a Christian if you're going to be a Christian, then you're going to understand this. Sex is good in God's way and God's plan in marriage. And we're not just talking about, oh, get married. 
It had better be a marriage that is what God wants it to be. That is what it is created for. Anything less than that? Uh Uh-uh. You know, sometimes people try to get away with things. Couples. That's happened. People have got it. No one's found out about it. Then, after they're married, Deb and I get a call, and -and so-and-so committed adultery. What? He or she committed adultery? How could they do that? You know how they could do that? They didn't have the character before they got married. What in the world they think they're going to get the character after they got married? You see, if you can't respect God before, if you can't put boundaries out here, then I'm going to tell you what, you're going to get into a lot of bumps, maybe about a car or something, all right? And you're a guy and you're going to go to work and there's going to be this sweet little thing that's always dressed nice and just respects you and says the right thing to you. And if you're a woman, you're going to go to work and there's a guy that's always kind and attentive and oh my gosh. And you're going to go right into it. You're going to be, you know, there are women whose lips are dripping with honey like Proverbs say just trying to trap the guy, and there's men who come in to find their way over weak-willed women that Paul warned Timothy about. They're out there. But if you don't learn that, look, I am a Christian. So when it comes to sex, God, you created it. There's nothing wrong with being tempted, but I will live my life of self-control until it's different in your way. If you, you know, if I do end up getting married to someone that belongs to you under your kingdom, okay. Until then, I'm fine. I am fine, okay? But I will be a Christian. If you don't make that decision, and you're going to be a heathen, but you're just here because we're a great group of people, there's nothing we can do to help you. There's nothing we can do. I would encourage you to be honest. And go out there with the heat. I wish, you know, I wish you wouldn't. I wish you'd believe. But I don't want you to do anything you don't believe. The last thing I want you to do. And don't worry, if you're low in faith, gosh, I don't know if I believe or not. Well, hey, keep hanging in there. We'll help you. Don't worry about that. We all get that way. I'm talking about if you're just thinking, ah, I don't believe this, but, you know, man, look at the girls. I'm going to, you know. You know what? You're not going to like it here. Because one thing someone's going to ask you is, who's discipling you? Who's influencing you? Well, I'm not into that. Well, you're probably at the wrong church then, you know? I think you made a wrong stop somewhere. Because we are serious about following Jesus and helping each other be everything God intended for us to be. That's what we're about. Okay? Okay, another thing that, uh, how to think about this going forward is, this is going to sound really, but I want you to think about it. Do you believe that God can give you life to the full? Do you believe that God can give you life to the full? Sharon's going to talk about John 10.10 in a minute. But that's what Jesus promised. 
He promised. You know, I love that song. Uh, I love all the songs we sang tonight, but I lean not on my own understanding. Um, the maker of heaven. That one, those three words, maker of heaven. Like, I could probably take the next two hours and just daydream about sunsets, sunrises, the constellations, the heavens, different kinds of clouds. Yeah, I mean, it, The maker of that is whose life, your life is in his hands. You know, if you just take one part of creation and think about it, it's amazing who God is. Amazing. And that's who has your life in his hands. That's who you can talk to all the time. You can ask all your questions. You can read his word. A few months ago when Sheridan was talking, if you haven't done it in a while, sit down and read Psalm 119 all the way through. The promises that come through knowing God's commands, his statutes, his laws. It's, I mean, by the end of it, some of the women and I, when we read, we'll just sit in a circle and read the whole thing all the way through. Just taking turns, reading Psalm 119, and by the end of it, we're all in tears. You know, it's so powerful. You know, as powerful as God is, unbelief, that little word, unbelief can ruin your life. And, you know, I think it's John 5 says that the work of being a follower of Jesus is to believe. The work is to believe. And it's hard work sometimes, right? But it's that frontal lobe thing again where we have to just bathe our minds with what God says so that that's what we believe. That's what comes to mind when Satan sends those things in there, right? So I, I just... Just spend some time on that. Spend some time on praying about believing. Talk to the people that are closest to you. You know, some, sometimes I've gotten um, clogged up with things um, and have needed some extra help. And um, sometimes there's even things from our uh, when we were growing up, and I don't mean to spend all this time But sometimes that needs to be unlocked so we can believe what God says to us. You know, um, Satan is just so mean and relentless, and the war is real all the time. And so sometimes we need to do some extra work. Like, why is it hard for me to believe God in this area? And if you, I promise you that if you pray about it, you talk to people that are close to you, that know you, and that's another pitch for being completely known by some people. You know, there's, you say all the things that you're the most ashamed of, most embarrassed about, or whatever, to a few people who know you really well, then they're also going to know how Satan comes at you so that this unbelief thing he can he gets a foothold, but you can break out of that. Um, I want to say this too: that you know, like I said, 
Sheridan and I have been married for a long time, but I'll promise you that 95% of our relationship is focused on all the same things that you need to focus on. It's, it, I want to demystify marriage <laughs> to you. The reason we have a good marriage is because we are focusing on all the things that we've been talking to you about focusing on. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's not something that you don't know about out there. There's just a boundary that God's put with sexuality for a reason. But that's, that's why our lives have been like they are. Not because we're married, but because we focused on the things we're telling you to focus on. You know, another question that came up with some people um, that we heard was um, how do you go from never thinking about sex, then marriage um, that includes the sexual relationship? How does that work? And what, what we wanted to tell you, and it's good information for you to have, Sheridan and I spend about 12 weeks with a couple after they're engaged. 12 weeks with very frank and specific talks about their family, about their character, about their connection and unity and communication. (coughs) And there's a lot that goes into that. So I want you to know that at the end of those, those talks, then the sexual relationship is talked about. But that's at the end, right before marriage. God designed marriage to go from completely pure minds to being married. And I can't explain to you how all that happens, but because God designed it, it works. Okay? But all the, I'm telling you all the things that goes into it first. Because those are all the things that are very, very important to build that relationship. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not, it's not a great, you know, like I said, I want to demystify it. Because the majority of every way that you live your life are, are supposed to be the way married people live their lives too. You understand? So don't let Satan kind of just put that, dangle that out and use it to make you discontent or, like I said, make an idolatry of marriage. We, uh, just in closing, Deb alluded to John 10.10. Jesus said, I've come to bring life and bring it abundantly. You have to find your contentment in God. Does that mean that, hey, you should not want to be married? No, that doesn't mean that. It's okay. Hey, I'd like to be married sometime. But you're not a lesser person right now. And if you come into marriage desperate, you're probably going to smother the person you marry. If you hadn't learned to find your contentment in Christ first, hey, if I get married, that would be awesome. If I don't, it's still going to be awesome. That's what you go for. 
I probably shared this with you, but I wanted to say it. You know, you look at me. Well, sharing it's easy for you to say you're married. Okay, well, before God, I will tell you this. Lake Alice on the University of Florida campus has a very special meaning to my heart. You know how Philippians 4 talks about the peace of God that transcends all understanding? That was one of the times I experienced that to, uh, it was like on steroids degree. Because you see, that was the end of a three-day fast. And what that fast was about is that I had taken an interest in Debbie Long. And I'd taken Debbie Long, this girl, out. And I really was liking Debbie Long. She was awesome. She was amazing. And man, I was just that. And then Debbie Long had a fit of craziness and thought that she liked to date around and, you know, date some other guys, you know, there in the church. It happens to the best of people, all right? Don't falter for it. I, I, I've forgiven her. But let me tell you what. <laughs> so the real reason was Debbie Long didn't want to be vulnerable. And I was running. Okay. But, nonetheless, I had no insight whatsoever. I just thought I got dumped. Okay? So I was crushed. I mean, I was devastated. And it occurred to me, I was thinking, okay, I ought to be hurt. There's nothing wrong with that. Be hurt. Oh, man, be disappointed. Cry if you have to. That's normal. That's human. But devastated? What is wrong with this picture? And I remember I didn't know what to do. I said, I am in a bad place because bottom line, what that showed me is that she's my God. I'm devastated. She's my... And I said... All I knew is in the Old Testament, sometimes people, when they were in, you know, wanted to repent, they fasted. So I just drank water, didn't eat a thing for three days. I read in the Bible where people would pray, spread eagle on their face. And I prayed to God, never once did I pray and make it work out. I prayed, God, change my heart so that you alone are God. And I begged him for three days. That's all I wanted. And at the end of those three days, I went to Lake Alice to finish that prayer, to end the fast. I, I figured fast were only three days. That's all I'd read. So, you know, um, I probably should have done the Daniel fast, gone 40, but I just knew of three days. And I was praying, and I said, you know what, Father, and that's when that peace overwhelmed me. And I knew, I said, I don't care if I ever get married, which means if I ever have sex. I don't care, God. All I want is you. That is, that is all. And it was the peace of God that passed all understanding. Now, you know, we started talking. I took her out. You know, love her and all of that. 
we got married, but there was never any confusion about who was God. Never any confusion. She doesn't budge him a bit off the throne in my life. A bit. Not even an iota. All right? And I don't budge him off the throne in her life either. We're there to be part of it. But God is God. Jesus is Lord. And the only way I can figure out that it seems to have worked for as long as it has is because Jesus said, I have come to bring life and life abundant. You have abundant life now. How do you need to talk about sex? You don't need to talk about sex, but you don't need to feel bad that you're sexually tempted. Just give yourself to God. You can exercise self-control and glorify God with your body, but you just keep Him as Lord and Him as Master. I know we went kind of long. It takes that. Um, we would love at some point maybe to do some questions. We may come back to a devotional which just answers questions, okay? We'll talk to Beeman Nicole about that. But I know Nigel has some closing comments here, announcements. Brother, just come on up. Guys, we love you all. I hope that this has helped you out. Jesus is Lord. <laughs>